Hello, I'm Arden, and welcome to this session on climate change with Johannes Akfa. Following a 20-minute talk by Johannes, we'll move to a live Q&A session where he will respond to your questions. You can submit questions in your name or anonymously using the box to the right of hand of this video. You can also vote for your favorite questions to move them up the queue. We'll try to get through as many as we can. Then, after 20 minutes, I'll bring the Q&A to the end, to an end. But that's not the end of the session. To help you think through and apply the ideas that you've heard, I'll be asking you to join a 20-minute icebreaker session where you'll have two speed meetings with other attendees to discuss your thoughts on the content. I'll explain how to do that when we get there. But now, let me introduce the speaker for this session. Johannes Akva has been involved in environmental activism since his teens and joined the research team at Founders Pledge last year, bringing five years of experience working in a think tank advising decision makers on climate policy. He first started thinking about climate from an EA perspective in 2016 as a side project, and now it's the focus of his research at Founders Pledge. Johannes holds an MA in Social Sciences from the University of Chicago and an MSc in Sociology with a focus on research methods from the University of Honningen. Here's Johannes. Hello, everyone. My name is Johannes Akva, I'm with Founders Pledge, and I'm looking forward to talk with you in the next hour about how we think about climate change and what we think one should do about climate change from an effective altruist perspective. I'm just going to start sharing the presentation now. And to kind of start with a conclusion, what we think the best thing to do around climate is really is funding charities with leverage on global emissions. And yeah, over the course of this presentation, I'm gonna um, kind of explain how we get there and what this kind of means concretely, but this is really a top level um, message uh, that I think we, we would stress that our thing is the most important thing that you can do right now on climate. But yeah, to kind of start with this first question, like what is it that you can actually do? And the natural thing to think about um, first is kind of what can we do with our like lifestyle decisions? Our typical lifestyle decisions like changing our consumption behavior, switching to electric cars, flying less, buying green energy, etc. And so this chart from our recent uh, kind of uh, climate and lifestyle report shows the impact of this and shows the impact of this under the idea that you're inspiring 10 other people to do the same thing. So like quite optimistic assumptions. So for example, switching to electric car, you inspire 10 other people, you can save around 20 tons of carbon or so. And then... This compares this to donating $1,000 to our top climate charities. And here, the assumptions are very pessimistic. So you're not assumed to inspire anyone else. And also, the effectiveness estimate, the cost-effective estimate is 10 times that what we think our best guess is. Even though you come out with like $1,000 donations, you come out with an impact on 100 tons um, impact on climate. And the point of this is not that you shouldn't do lifestyle changes. Uh, the point of this is that when you think about, <clears throat> about the actions available to you, do think about um, donations as well because they're like a very important part and they allow you to have leverage far beyond what you can do with changing your lifestyle. And that's just the key insight from this report. There's lots more there, but this is kind of the key thing for us today. And the key word there is, of course, to our climate charities. And as any good um, EA organization, we believe that like the very best charities are 10 to 100 times or even better than the worst charities or even than average charities. But to really understand what are the very best cha charities, we need to understand what is kind of the nature of the challenge and what does that imply about the effective strategies and the effective charities in that space. So that's what I'm going to talk about next. What is the challenge? 
The first thing to note really is that climate change, even though we talk about climate change much more than these other problems, is really part of a triple challenge because it's mostly, climate change is mostly about solving an energy problem. So um, I think low carbon energy, energy contributes to about 80% or so uh, of uh, global human-based emissions. So this is really key. And this interacts with other issues uh, that I'm going to talk about. But first, on climate, um, so we're currently on a path to like three degrees of warming, and there's an over 1% chance of six degrees of warming. Three degrees of warming would certainly be really bad, and six degrees of warming is kind of almost unimaginably a different world from, from the world that we're living in right now. But of course, we only don't only care about the fact whether it's bad or not, but we also want to know like how bad is this exactly, and how does this compare to other things? That we care about. And I think there have been roughly like three different kinds of questions pursued in relation to that in the EA community. One is really like, is it a direct existential risk? Where I think the, there's a little bit of disagreement on whether or not it can be a uh, direct existential risk. So Neil Bowerman last year gave a talk uh, at this conference where he kind of came to the conclusion that it can be, but though it's unlikely, there's prior work from my colleague John Halstead, which came to the conclusion that it's probably not. In any case, this is not um, a very likely scenario, but um, there is agreement that um, I guess that there can be an indirect uh, existential risk factor that is related to climate change. So the idea is that climate change kind of uh, increases political instability, increases conflict, and that just makes other existential risks such as great power war more likely. And I think there's generally agreement that this is something we should worry about, or that this is definitely a possibility, but. As far as I know, there's really no solid quantification or like how much that kind of adds to the importance of climate change in our thinking. So this is something very much a research frontier. Um, unfortunately, I can't say anything smart about this right now. The third question really is, how does climate compare more to more near-term interventions such as uh, global health interventions? And here, Hauke Hillebrand, the Flats Fund last year, kind of made the argument that it probably compares relatively poorly. That it's hard to think that climate is as good. My colleague Stephen Clare and I were currently uh, also working on that question. And we'll soon release uh, something for comments. Uh, come to the, the view that it depends. And they're actually quite, like, it's quite imaginable that climate compares very favorably. The main difference here to Hauke's work is like a very different um, view on the social cost of carbon. Happy to go to, uh, to more detail on this in the discussion. But really, so this is just the first part of the triple challenge. The second part of the triple challenge is air pollution. And like we have 5 million premature deaths um, per year from air pollution, at least. And this is really kind of split rather evenly between fossil air pollution and indoor air pollution uh, from biomass. And this is like quite significant um, public health problem uh, that we talk about much, much less than we talk about climate change. Um, but maybe we should talk about it much more because uh, from a near-termist perspective, air pollution really is of similar importance um, as climate action. And you can kind of see this here. Um, on the x-axis, you have um, over time, benefits over time. On the y-axis, you have, um, sorry, on the x-axis, you have over time and then uh, you have the, the benefits and the red benefits here are the benefits that are related to air pollution, like from climate action. The red benefits are air pollution related, public health benefits, and the blue benefits are more like conventional climate benefits. And you can see that at least for the next couple of decades, um, the red, so the air pollution benefits 
kind of outweigh even the climate benefits that over time this changes because lots of climate impacts are lacked. But you can see like there's really a strong reason to think that um, air pollution is really an important part and that uh, lots of things that you can do with climate like have kind of a second justification of a similar magnitude in their air pollution and public health benefits. And we've also tried to estimate that uh, for, and I'm going to um, publish work on this uh, later this year, kind of coming to coming to the rough conclusion that this can very much be like a significant um, addition to the cost effectiveness of climate charities, this kind of co-benefit. And then there's the third part of the triple challenge, which is really around energy poverty. So like right now, about 3 billion people, almost every second human are cooking with biomass. About 1 billion people don't have access to electricity. And these kind of statistics hide a much wider uh, amount of like energy poverty that's maybe less severe, but still quite severe compared to what we're experiencing. And the reason that this is important is because um, having more energy is very closely tied to human development, as you can see on this graph. On the left-hand side is human development index, and then by energy, uh, by energy footprint. And you kind of see it in the in the part where the mo most of the global poor live, kind of in the area between zero and 100, roughly. So there's a very, very strong relationship between having more energy and having better human development. And this is not like a one uh, one chain street in terms of the causality. But it really means that if you're hoping for a world and working for a world where the average human is much richer than they are today, especially where the global poor are much richer than today, you got to expect that global energy demand is uh, going to massively increase. And really what this kind of the bottom line of thinking about climate as a triple challenge is means that the very best climate opportunities really have solved for much more than just climate. So they have significant other benefits. But also we kind of need to look for solutions that work in the world where energy demand uh, is increasing and like this can this can help. So like if we're increasing clean energy, this can also help with energy poverty, but it also sometimes creates tensions and that's just something uh, to be aware of. So how are we actually uh, doing? Where are we at in kind of this um, kind of this situation towards, towards addressing the problem of climate and the related problems around energy poverty and air pollution? And until now, we can pretty much say um, that energy growth right now is fossil fuel growth. Um, you can see this here, energy demand is massively uh, increasing since 1950. And you can see the top share of low carbon energy is about 10% right now. And it hasn't really changed very much because uh, some low carbon sources have gone down, nuclear has gone down, solar and wind have gone up, but overall the share is like still very low. That's kind of where we are right now. And this is kind of a beautiful chart from, that John made on where we need to go. And essentially, if you take seriously the idea of like climate commitments of meeting climate policy targets, uh, essentially by 2050, this 90% of um, carbon, high carbon energy essentially needs to go to zero. And at the same time, uh, by the end of the century or so, we need to double or maybe even triple the overall size of the energy. So this 10% of energy right now needs to increase by factor of uh, 20 or so um, over the next couple of decades. So this kind of gives you a sense of like how vast this challenge really is. Um, yeah, and sorry, this was too long of a dramatic pause, but the question really is what can we really do about this? Because like, yeah, the challenge is daunting. And 
for me, kind of the key message from this is um, when we look at solutions and high-impact solutions, we want to look for solutions that have global leverage and that can like, really make an impact on global emissions and that they can do so like as effectively as possible because if we're all just doing a little bit or if we're okay with doing things that are okay but not great, like we're not going to solve this problem. So this is kind of where this impetus for like looking for the highest impact options kind of comes from. And so there are about three different strategies we think right now that can kind of basically justify, like basically solve for this um, global leverage. The first one is climate finance, which is the idea that um, you're essentially financing uh, emission abatement in developing countries, which could be really high impact because it is targeted where emissions rise and also where avoiding emissions is usually cheap. But in this big part of the required scale is often uh, very difficult to do. Uh, so the scale, is, the scale is an issue, the funding that you would need, and also the funding that seems to be available. So there seems to be very little appetite for funding this. For example, the Green Climate Fund um, has the goal of having $100 billion per year to disperse um, as the main like, tool of international climate finance right now has collected about uh, $10 billion, and this is not per year. This is total commitment. And there's also very real issues uh, that make this much harder, and that's the degree of international cooperation that you need and that you need to um, essentially very often kind of figure out what is additional climate action that you want to finance. And this is like this always involves a lot of reasoning about counterfactuals would be hard and kind of the best of worlds. But of course, in a world with 200 countries and different interests, that makes it really hard. And this is not to say that there cannot be like super effective solutions in there. Like this is an area we actively like looking at, but it's just something where there's, it's not as good as it looked at the first um, place, which also the experience with the clean development mechanism, for example, uh, has shown. And then there's the second um, kind of highly effective lever that we think we can make a real big difference, and that's policy leadership. Um, and this is policy leadership of like uh, pushing for policy in high-income countries. And really, this is very much not motivated by the emissions math in those countries. Because as I've shown you, kind of most of the growth in emissions is not going to be in OECD economies. And in OECD economies, there's often already strong climate policy in place, which means as a prior, you should be quite skeptical that pushing for policy change in high-income countries can make a big difference. But there's a big but there that kind of can make this very effective if you're pushing for policies where it's plausible that there's a strong domino effect that lots of other countries adopt uh, similar policies and that this will reduce emissions. And uh, we're currently investigating one charity that kind of falls into this bucket where this is kind of this domino effect is uh, the argument, even the argument of their TED talk. And so that's the Climate Leadership Council um, where the idea is to push carbon pricing in the US and then also inspire other countries to follow suit also with a trade component. And that's something we're currently investigating. Happy to talk more about this in the discussion. Then there's the third lever. Uh, that's kind of has been the primary lever um, that we've been working on in the past. And that's kind of focused around energy innovation, where the idea is why would this be great? Well, because it works in a world of rising energy demand and in a world of low coordination. So essentially a couple of countries can decide, okay, we really want to make solar and wind cheap and I did that and then this really changed the game which makes this an attractive uh, logic in the world we're living in but the question of course is why should we focus on that now we, you could say okay it's not necessary anymore because wind and solar have already succeeded or you could say it's kind of too late because climate is too urgent 
So we need a bit more justification. Why would that be such a good lever? And that's what I'm going to talk about next. And the first part of the answer is um, because in the, in the kind of climate policy situation where we are, where the goal is net zero emissions, um, we're still quite far from that. And there's still like about a quarter of emissions or so, like around classical industrial sectors, iron and steel and cement, or load falling electricity or aviation and shipping, uh, where really the existing solutions to decarbonize that are not great, either too expensive or not scalable or both. So we really need more um, technological innovation in those spaces. And this is actually uh, not like this is not only a quarter of emissions, but really so this is analysis from the International Energy Agency. The challenge goes much deeper. So the International Energy Agency thinks that only seven out of 39 technologies uh, that are considered necessary for like climate success are considered on track and all the rest is not. Makes sense to look at those that are on track. So like there's solar there, there's electric vehicles there, there's rail there, there's lighting there. A lot of technologies that we kind of know and like. Um, and this is really no coincidence, uh, we think. So it's not a uh, coincidence that those, like many of those success stories, are technologies that have been widely popular for a long time, long before they were economically viable. So, for example, solar has arguably been, arguably been like um, very popular uh, since the 1970s. And this really has enabled lots of policy support, both for innovation policy and deployment subsidies for early deployment, which both have really helped to kind of drive down the cost of those technologies and make them competitive. So really, it's no, no coincidence that those technologies have succeeded and we kind of we know how to do this in our societies. But, and this is really the big part here, we need to pay more attention to these neglected technologies um, for which we're not doing this. And you can see this here. So this is philanthropic uh, spending in the U.S. by major like philanthropists there per megaton um, of like per megaton that those different technologies contribute to the challenge. And kind of putting this in relation, and you can see like lots of funding for solar and wind, lots of funding for light duty transport stuff like electric cars, for forestry for energy efficiency, but almost no support for carbon capture and storage, and then no support for decarbonizing heavy-duty transport, industrial decarbonization, nuclear. And this is really, the reason this is really so tragic is because, as we've seen before, all of those technologies are really helpful or even necessary to kind of get to zero um, emissions. So really, uh, we kind of need to shift at least some of the philanthropic attention to that because there can be huge, huge leverage to be had there. And this is really what we need to focus on if we go forward. And yeah, this is kind of our mainline conclusion from, from the innovation, but is that we need to do for those neglected technologies what we have already done for solar and wind. And this is the good news. We believe that we can actually do that. So like our top charity in this space is the Clean Air Task Force, which kind of combines three things to focus on neglected technologies. If you look at before the neglected technologies, the technologies are not doing well and compare this with the priorities of Clean Air Task Force, it's essentially a one-to-one match. It's always focused on those neglected solutions is focused on clean air task force also focused on innovation making those technologies better better for everyone and then focused on advocacy kind of focusing on um, influencing american uh, energy energy innovation policy so kind of combining three different elements that make us think that this is a really outstanding opportunity in the climate space that can very likely uh, abate a ton of carbon for a dollar and probably uh, quite a bit less. So like really outstanding opportunities. We're also looking at other kind of opportunities that go in similar directions. 
But yeah, to kind of zoom out from this innovation bit and kind of the overall talk, um, the key takeaways that I really want to um, impart is like the first one is really that climate is really deeply interwoven with other causes and that this matters and how we think about it from an EA perspective. The second one is that impactful climate philanthropy is really about leverage and global emissions. So like effective strategies should solve for that. And there are various strategies uh, that can achieve that leverage. I talked more about energy innovation, but not, not like for any inherent reason. So like it makes sense to look at all of those other uh, solutions, policy leadership, climate finance as well. The important thing is um, a plausible story of having leverage on global emissions in a very cost-effective way. Yeah, this is kind of where my talk ends. I'm looking forward to discuss this more with you. I'm also happy to uh, hear from you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the talk, Johannes. I see we have a number of questions submitted already. So let's start off with the first one. So in your talk, you discussed the funding gap for energy innovation, especially when it comes to neglected technologies like advanced nuclear. Are there other like low-hanging fruits for addressing climate change that you think EAs should work on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think um, on the research side, kind of like if we look at like identifying uh, more charities, uh, EAs uh, have now kind of looked at energy innovation and we're currently looking at more opportunities there. But I think there's like these other strategies that I highlighted in my talk, in particular policy um, leadership, something where I think we've spent less time thinking about and less time researching. So that would be something where uh, I think it would make sense to look for whether there are like highly, highly effective um, options in that space. And I think similarly for other highly effective um, options to kind of increase uh, international climate governance, international climate finance, that would be kind of the research frontiers um, kind of in terms of EA um, recommendations, I would think. But I do think I would want to stress that I think right now there's still a lot of funding gap to be filled in energy innovation. So I think energy innovation advocacy. So I think this should be our focus in terms of what we're trying to fund at this point. Cool. Let's, uh, as the second question that we have is... Do you see any common ground between the effective altruism movement and movements, movements like Extinction Rebellion? Um, I mean, I, I think there's some common ground, but I would say the common ground is fairly limited. So um, something that I would like to understand better is kind of what is the role of these broad climate movements. But from, from what I know so far, especially like with movements such as Extinction Rebellion, uh, they're often not very closely um, tied to the to scientific information. So a lot of the advocacy or a lot of the um, a lot of the pressure kind of goes into the right direction, paying more attention to climate, um, but often in a way that uh, kind of is removed from the science. So, for example, this claim that we need to go to net zero emissions by 2030 is something that Extinction Rebellion would say, which is not really the result of climate science. So these. These kind of things um, make me more skeptical. And the other thing is that these are very broad, um, very broad movements. So it's hard to um, hard to think that there's like a very high impact there because like at least um, I tend to believe the main problem with climate change is not the lack of overall societal attention, which is kind of what this movement address, but rather the lack of like effectively focused action. And this is kind of, I think, why we think that um, 
supporting like highly effective advocacy charities is probably uh, more impactful at the margin. At the same time, those movements are, of course, useful because they increase the overall attention to the issue. Yeah, I suppose uh, if, you know, just overall attention being increased will like probably, unless there's some like reason to think it wouldn't like increase attention to the these like low hanging fruits and other things that we think are most effective. Um, so I, I would disagree a little bit there. So I do okay. think there's there's ways to increase overall attention that's actually counterproductive. So I think one part of this is kind of this very like catastrophic framing and also <laughs> the like extreme urgency framing, because for example, a typical framing like, okay, we have to act now, we have to have emissions by 2030 or something. Um, that kind of does weaken, for example, does weaken the energy innovation argument, right? In public discourse, it's easy to then say, okay, we just have to throw everything right now. We don't have to do like the smart thing that's good for like decarbonizing by 2050. So I would not fully agree with that. And also, I mean, like in my home country in Germany, uh, when you see Fridays for Future, it's essentially co-opted by the, I guess, the general green mainstream in Germany, which is, for example, like heavily anti-nuclear, anti-carbon capture, etc. So even though you're superficially increasing the attention to the issue, you're not really improving um, the solutions that you're seeking. You're just kind of um, increasing. Yeah. yeah. So the effect is not necessarily um, one-to-one positive. That's a really helpful clarification. Yeah. Um, so speaking of a catastrophic framing, uh, we also have a, a question, uh, which I'm also very interested in, which is, do you have thoughts on climate change increasing global instability and therefore driving other catastrophic risks. I know you mentioned in the talk that uh, people think it like it's plausible that climate change is a risk factor for catastrophic risks, but uh, do you want to talk at all more about that, especially when it comes to global instability? Yeah. So I do think, um, I I think that the funny thing about this is like, I think everyone kind of agrees, but it's really hard. I mean, as I tried to highlight in my talk to kind of give any kind of quantification on that, um, so that's what I see as the central challenge there. Uh, I do think like if you worry about climate from like a long-termist perspective, I think that's just the main reason to worry about it. If you kind of take the view, there's a lot, um, lot to be decided in the next 200 years. And then you have climate change being in a significant driver of conflict potentially in that time, like driving things like mass, um, mass displacement, et cetera, uh, conflict. And so I do, I do think this is like very very serious concern, but I do find it really hard to kind of make this any more precise. And I also think in the wider, like not in the EA sphere, but in the wider discussion of this issue of climate risks, um, this is often used kind of as a justification to motivate more action on climate change to kind of focus on this like threat multiplier framing. So like on the one hand, I'm, I'm really kind of quite confident that this is like a significant part of the reason we should care about climate change. On the other hand, I do have a certain skepticism towards um, because it's there's essentially unknowable and the incentives to kind of find the optimal uh, truth seeking answer in that place and not optimal to kind of trust the, the published research on that just uh, one to one. So I think so, this would also be a research frontier. Um, <laughs> no way. But it sounds like you're like not that optimistic about it. You said like it seems sort of unknowable how big the effect is. Yeah, I think, I mean, because this is way, way more complicated than the climate physics. Um, Which is already um, pretty complicated. Yes, but I mean, essentially, I think um, I think the issue is so complicated because we, we kind of know that that reactions, like even to reactions to relatively small disturbances can be like amplified in societal processes, but this goes for like 
so many different chains. It goes from like how does climate change translate into environmental impacts? How does how severe are those for human societies? Huge uncertainties there. Then huge uncertainty there, like how societies react. So like this could be really bad. Like it's very plausible to construct a story where like this is really bad. It's also really plausible to construct a story where this is not a big issue and like uh, it's it's hard to kind of make make more progress on that or I think it will take a lot of uh, effort and additional research. Yeah, or maybe some like, yeah, new sort of innovative way of going about it. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so another question that uh, is looking is pretty popular is it seems like uh, factory farming and meat consumption weren't a big part of, aren't a big part of the climate conversation. I'm actually not sure exactly if this, this uh, question is, is, is thinking about the broader conversation or about your talk in particular, but I suppose they're not a huge part of the broader conversation and it wasn't like a big part of your talk. Do you want to speak to why that is in both cases? Um, I actually think it's, it's quite a big part of the broader conversation, but the, the reason, um, I mean, or it certainly has become over the last three or four years where environmental organizations have started talking about this, I guess environment for environmental organizations in principle, it's easy to blame big business and um, it's much harder to kind of blame uh, consumption choices because also the most members of Greenpeace do eat meat. So like um, kind of in terms of the, the politics, it's, it's uh, easy to forget about this. Um, but I think why I haven't focused very much on this is because um, I mean, there's, there's two kinds of emissions that are mostly related to that. So one is land use, land use change emissions. So that's actually something which kind of falls into climate finance and also relates to uh, one of our recommendations, Coalition for Rainforest Nations, that would kind of address that. But the other kind of emissions, why people worry a lot about um, animal agriculture is um, methane emissions. And those are like short-lived climate pollutants. So they're really potent in the, over the next 12 years. Um, but they're not necessarily um, like that decisive for, for long-term um, warming, for peak warming. And if that's kind of what you most care about, then the importance of animal agriculture is kind of reduced, or at least the, uh, the importance of those kind of emissions is reduced. And that I think is the main reason we're not primarily so focused on this um, right now. Okay, thanks. Uh, so speaking of lifestyle choices um somebody wants to know and actually lots of people want to know uh if i have to fly would you recommend donating to one of these effective charities that uh you know founders pledge has looked into instead of paying airline specific offsetting programs absolutely um so i think airline specific offsetting programs will normally not be very good um so because a lot of the um offsetting there is a, like a, um international climate finance mechanisms. And these are mechanisms where it's very difficult to make sure that um, those emissions really are, um, so, sorry, the emissions saved, they, these are truly emission, uh, truly additional. Um, and even if they are kind of the, the cost of, of those should not like, should, should be much less cost effective than the most effective climate charities. So as long as you're okay with kind of being risk neutral and like, of course, for advocacy charities, there is a risk that there's no progress there, right? But as long as you're okay with that, like as long as you're okay with expecting, like maximizing the expected value of your contributions, you should definitely prefer to give to climate charities over classical offsets, yes. So this is a, I guess, a related question um, about, you know, yeah, different charities being differently effective and, and which we should focus on. So, what do you 
recommend effective altruists or people of the effective altruism community do to divert donations from less effective charities to the top climate change organizations? From, from less effective charities in the climate space? Yes. Yes. Uh, so I think, um, well, like my theory of change there is a little bit that uh, improving knowledge um, helps. And there's a lot of like what I've tried to kind of do in this talk and kind of give crucial considerations of why there are specific charities that are much, much better and kind of explain that more, more widely, like make it more widely known what kind of the emissions math is in different countries, make more widely known what the issue is with energy poverty and kind of this can this can hopefully move people towards um, towards more effective um, solutions, kind of in a, in a similar way that you would hope to be able to move people from cat shelters to advocacy for against animal uh, agriculture. Um, yeah, I'm not sure this is a good answer. Um, <laughs> if, if there's a better answer out there, I'd really be uh, curious. I think this is what we are trying to do at Founders Pledge, but we do have a lot of time to speak to members and we're really kind of trying to shift their perspective and, and educate them about what's the nature of the challenge and what, why does that change, what you should give to. So uh, you talked a bit about, in, in the talk, about why donating to effective organizations is is looks much more effective than uh, making sort of choices about your lifestyle um, or, or like doing things like switching to clean energy uh, yourself. Can you talk a little bit more about why that is and what exactly those donations end up translating into such that they're more valuable? Absolutely. Um, so first, kind of why do we think a lot of lifestyle choices are not very impactful? Um, so, for example, something like switching uh, switching to clean energy. Um, if you do that uh, in Europe, for example, so uh, we're a lot of the part of the energy emissions are kind of already on an emissions trading system. So they're capped. The total amount is set. Um, also there are renewable target sets. So the expansion of renewables is kind of already dictated by policy. So there isn't like this is simplified, but there isn't a very clear link between your behavior and kind of the overall amount of, of that energy or so this is kind of the problem that that policy often mitigates those links. Um, so this is, this is one issue. But there's a deeper issue there. So like, even if that would not exist, um, the issue is that advocacy charities, like the very best advocacy charities, and like we spend hundreds of hours kind of trying to get the track record of those charities right, uh, they can influence a billion dollar innovation budgets uh, on like single million uh, dollar um, organizational budgets. And they can focus on solutions that will have big global impact, such as driving down um, technology costs. And that's just something that's not usually available to you um, in your lifestyle actions because your lifestyle actions are mostly uh, locally constrained. Thanks. Um, so this is a little bit uh, of a different of a different um, subject, but what is your view on carbon capture right now? Um, okay. What's meant here of carbon capture? Generally, everything negative emissions or just specific? Well, the question that says carbon capture, but I think um, they'd probably be interested in, in your view on negative emissions technologies in general and carbon capture in particular. Yeah. Um, I mean, so there's there's two kinds of carbon capture. There's, there's one kind of making fossil fuel power plants uh, carbon neutral. Um, I mean, this is a technology that has been neglected, but where I guess the whether or not this will ever take off is a little bit less clear. Um, would be very valuable if it did, but um, it's also conceivable that it does not. Um, 
But I think this is like for the more general bucket of like carbon capture as in like everything that sucks carbon out of the air and everything that's around negative emissions. That's, um, I mean, every energy model where we reach climate targets tells us that this is a crucial part of the picture. Um, and everything that we kind of know about the political economy tells us that this is something that's going to be neglected because often the industries around that don't exist yet. And it's also not not a very sexy technology. It's just making kind of cleaning up a mess. There's nothing inspiring about cleaning up a mess. Um, but it's something we absolutely need to do. Um, well, I mean, compared to, yeah, comparatively speaking, I still think it. So, like, this is something we absolutely need to do, and we're looking at uh, one charity specifically that's like Carbon 180 that is focused on advocacy around that issue because we think that that's potentially a very high leverage um, opportunity to improve um support for those kind of technologies because they're going to be crucial. Cool. That's a good name, Carbon 180. Um, yes. Um, they also rebranded. They had a much much clunkier name before they were the Center for Carbon Removal, so they <laughs> optimized. <laughs> I agree. This name. is an improvement. Um, okay. I think this uh, should be our last question, but just looking forward, um, what are priorities for further research on this topic as you see it? Yeah. So I think right now um, our our focus at Founders Pledge is really focused on identifying more high impact um, charities in the space and kind of covering a broad range. Um, so like identifying more energy innovation advocacy charities, but also going into these other areas that I've mentioned in my talk, kind of see whether there are high impact opportunities there. I think something else that's not a priority uh, for us right now, but I think that's something that would be really happy if someone did that would be kind of getting more precise on this on these indirect uh, risks um, from climate change. Uh, and, that, and this would, I think, be really crucial to kind of improve our understanding as a community of how we prioritize climate change interventions uh, versus other things. Cool. Actually, since we now we still, still do have a minute left or so, um, I'm going to ask a follow-up on that, which is just, uh, do you think the main value of getting more precise about how climate change might be destabilizing comes from figuring out, helping us figure out how much to prioritize climate change in general, or is it like, well, maybe we could discover some interventions that like actually like cut those connections, like make it so that climate change is a little bit less destabilizing. Um, if we um, like knew exactly what the mechanisms were going to be. Yeah. But I don't think we'll know this with exactly. I mean, I think this was a little bit the thinking of like open philanthropy, like when open philanthropy was focusing like on work and solar geoengineering, uh, which has its like own kind of problems. Um, but I think that that would be maybe the only kind of specific recommendation that might come out based on that specifically focusing on like averting worst case scenarios. But I do think broadly, broadly speaking, this is more about prioritization and actually it's also cost prioritization within EA. So this is not a thing that's important for, I think, or much less important for the general public because for the general public, I don't think it's that sensitive to uh, whether it's like how bad exactly climate change is, there's broad consensus that climate change is really bad, but the degree of action is not really determined or proportional to the badness. Okay. More like That's what's feas feasible to do politically. Yeah. Um, and I guess they're not going to like, if they diverted, if the broader community diverted uh, energy from like working on climate change, they wouldn't necessarily divert it to like working on catastrophic biological risks or something. Yeah. So it doesn't have the same urgency yeah. maybe. Uh, yeah. as in the EA community where people are really flexible with their donations and stuff. Yeah. Um, cool. That's helpful. Um, okay. Well, 
I think that concludes the Q&A part of this session, but uh, the session is not over. So discussing new ideas with people can be a really good way to understand them. And so we're going to use the last 20 minutes of this session for a couple of short speed meetings with other attendees. Uh, if you check the session description below this video, you'll find a link to the icebreaker session and where we're going to have those meetings. So please click on that link now and a new host will meet you on the other side. Uh, thank you all for watching.